Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture comes from John 19, 31 through 42. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once they came, there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you, may, you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him who they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is God's word. I'm sure you all could sense in Ryan's prayer the concern for J.W., someone who was a part of our body and his family is very beloved by us. We received news late last night that he's passed into the presence of the Lord. Throughout this past week in their ordeal, his family has shown nothing but firmness of faith, trust in the goodness of God, and in the promise of eternal life. That's what has sustained them and sustains them now. It's a model to us and it bolsters our faith. Their faith bolsters our faith. Two other Westgaters have lost or laid parents to rest this past week. They too have that same strength of faith in Jesus' promise that where he is, every believer will be also. Our hope in eternal life with God gives us comfort when loved ones are, are lost. It gives us courage when we face our own end. Yet not everybody believes this. Many people think it's a fanciful story. Overheard at one funeral I actually attended when the pastor spoke about the deceased being in the presence of God. It was one of the mourners was overheard whispering, fantasy, pure fantasy. Stephen Hawking opined, there is no heaven or afterlife. And he called such beliefs a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. Are we deluding ourselves in order to find some measure of comfort? Or does our faith in eternal life 
stand on firm ground? Does it stand on a reality that is supported by objective historical evidence? Let's pray. Our Father, meet, meet us today. Meet us in our grief with the hope of Jesus Christ. And God, in that hope, give us a greater assurance, objectively through the proof we will look at this morning, but subjectively through your spirit that drives that truth home into each of our lives. In Christ we pray, amen. Last week we looked at the death of Jesus and we saw that in his cry, it is finished, Jesus was saying, he has finished paying the price for the sins of humanity so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. So in those words, it is finished, he provided restoration for us with God, new life for believers, but also the ultimate restoration of the world. John, the author of the book we're studying, knows that people would find this hard to believe. And so, as he unveils the burial of Jesus Christ, he does it in order to give us certain proof that what he said about the cross, what he said about Jesus' death, and what he will say about Jesus' resurrection that we'll look at next week is true. We see this in verse 19, verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 35, when he says, he who has seen it, that's John himself, is born witness. And his testimony is true. He knows he's telling the truth. We don't know, but he did. He knows he's telling the truth. And he's telling the truth so we all might believe that which is true. John is practically screaming out, it's true, it's true, it's true. Believe it. Because you can have eternal life through faith in Christ. But he does more than scream this out. He offers evidence of the veracity of Jesus' claims, which we're going to look at this morning. Through the fulfillment of prophecy, the eyewitness reports, and the certainty of Jesus' death. You know, everyone has an opinion about the afterlife. Is there an afterlife? What will it be life? How do you get to an afterlife with God? We all have opinions and none of our opinions matter. There's only one opinion that matters and that is God's. And so we need to seek his opinion. And he has given his opinion. He has shouted it from the mountaintops that there is eternal life and it comes through Jesus Christ. And we know that through the prophecies. God has given us supernatural evidence by the number of prophecies and the specificity of those prophecies all pointing to Jesus Christ. Jesus himself wanted us to look at the prophecies and to measure his life according to those. His first act in ministry after he had fasted and prayed for 40 days in the wilderness, being tempted by Satan, first thing he does is he goes into the synagogue. 
and he's handed a scroll from Isaiah. He reads a portion of that scroll and then sits down. And this is what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. After he sat down, he said, These words are fulfilled today in your presence. He began his ministry showing that he would fulfill the prophecies of Messiah. Were these just audacious, narcissistic claims? Is Jesus a charlatan trying to fool everybody? Or are these words of Jesus true? Is the picture he gives us of us as the Son of God, the Messiah, true? We judge the answer of that by looking at his life and the way he fulfilled prophecy. In John's eyewitness report that we see in our passage today, he mentions four prophecies that Jesus fulfilled just in his death and burial. We read in verse 24, After the soldiers divided Jesus' clothes, John adds, This was to fulfill the scriptures, which say they divided, divided my garments among them, and my clothing they cast lots. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill scripture, I thirst. And because the Jewish people wouldn't leave a body on the cross during the Sabbath, the soldiers sped up the death of the criminals by breaking their legs. And by breaking their legs, they could no longer push off and they would uh, be asphyxiated. But when they came to Jesus' body, it appeared he was already dead. And so instead, they stuck a spear in him to ensure that. And so now we read in verses 36 and 37, these things took place that scripture might be fulfilled. <clears throat> Not one of his bones was broken. And then another scripture says, they will look on him whom they pierced. Now, Perhaps somebody could match these four prophecies by accident or by coincidence, but they can't fulfill the multitude of prophecies that Jesus filled. One scholar, J. Barton Payne, who studied all of the prophecies, wrote a book, The Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy, and he found as many as 574 verses in the Old Testament that somehow point to or describe or reference the coming Messiah. Alfred Edersheim, a Jewish convert to Christianity, the author of a classic, The Life and Times of Jesus Christ, found 456 Old Testament verses referring to the Messiah or his times. We say conservatively, Jesus fulfilled at least 300 prophecies in his lifetime. 300 prophecies. Now, mathematician uh, Peter Stoner, he counted the probability of one person fulfilling just 48 of those promises. 
as to be one time, one in ten time to the 157th power. In other words, one followed by 157 zeros. Now, he also described, he said, if you could take silver dollars and fill them, fill Texas, fill Texas with silver dollars two feet deep, and you marked one of those silver dollars and blindfolded somebody and said, go pick out a silver dollar. The odds of that person picking out that silver dollar is about what it would take for someone to fulfill just 48 of the promises, the prophecies regarding Jesus. But not only did Jesus fulfill an incalculable number of prophecies, so many of them were very specific prophecies so that they can't be coincidences. In the Gospel of Matthew, just to look at some of these specific ones, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now he cried that out because God had forsaken Jesus. Because our sin was placed on Jesus. And the Holy God could not accept and embrace Jesus as he bore our sins. But there's another reason. Those are the first words of Psalm 22. We read, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the groaning, from the words of my groaning? He wanted the Jewish people who were at the foot of the cross to begin to think of Psalm 22 because he was experiencing what that psalm described. You know, a while back I was talking to a friend who is a skeptic. And he questioned Christianity. And so I said, well, let me read a portion of scripture to you. And this is what I read from Psalm 22. <clears throat> I didn't tell him what it was from. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. They lay me in the dust of death. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. I then asked my friend, who's this talking about? Now, my friend never studied the Bible, and his answer was very quickly, well, that's, that's speaking about Jesus. And then I informed him, those words were written 1,000 years before Jesus was born. 500 years before crucifixion was ever used as a form of punishment. Jesus fulfilled these very specifically. We could look at other passages too, like Isaiah 53, which talks about Jesus being despised and rejected, the Messiah being despised and rejected, led like a lamb to slaughter, convicted through a mockery of justice, 
pierced for our transgressions, crucified with wicked men, yet buried by a rich man, and judged by God for our sins. Prophecies from the time of creation through the days of Abraham, Moses, David, Isaiah, Daniel, Zechariah, and the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. And then the New Testament opens with John the Baptist pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus fulfilled these prophecies in such an explicit way that anyone with an open heart and open mind would certainly say it is absolutely amazing and it certainly looks like Jesus is the Messiah the Old Testament was talking about. Our author is one of those people who drew such a conclusion, but he was also an eyewitness. As we've already noted, and I want to repeat verse 35 to drive it home, he who saw it, he who saw this crucifixion, he was there, the foot of the cross, he bears witness. His testimony is true. He knows that he's telling the truth so that you may also believe. You know, one of my college courses on the Bible questioned the veracity of the biblical accounts of Jesus by saying there was such a lengthy period between the life of Jesus and the stories written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that we can't trust them. It was during that century of time that the Gospels were embellished and mythologized. Jesus they presented was simply a myth. Nothing could be further from the truth. Even if John's gospel, which most scholars agree, was written in the last decade of the first century, he was an eyewitness. He was older, but he was an eyewitness. He saw it with his own eyes. He wasn't espousing a myth. He was telling us what he himself saw and heard. And he wasn't alone. The Bible says you can believe a testimony if you have two or three witnesses. We have two eyewitnesses reports, the Gospel of John and then the Gospel of Matthew, who is one of the disciples, the tax collector. But we could add Mark's Gospel because it's unanimous among the early church writers that Mark, though he wasn't a disciple of Jesus, was recording what Peter told him to record. In the fourth gospel, Luke, though he wasn't a disciple, he was a historian, and he took pains to study the life and death of Jesus Christ. And this is how he begins his book. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed the things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And what he's saying, I have explored. I've explored the early writings. I've talked to eyewitnesses. I've spent time... Uh, I've studied and studied 
so that I can be absolutely certain that what I communicate in my book is reality. What I was taught in college has long since been disproven. The article, Dating the Gospels and Resurrection, it's not talking about we're going to ask them out for a date. It's saying, what time were these written? Offers a summary of contemporary scholarship. It says, scholars in the 19th century began to posit the idea that the Gospels were written much later. They were written in the second century. And that the Gospels weren't written by the people attributed to them. And that view of the Gospels grew into the 20th century, but modern scholars have backed off that view, and they concede that the Gospels were written within a generation of the death of Jesus. That means there were a large group of people still alive who could refute the stories of Jesus if they were untrue. Perhaps Matthew, Luke wrote 40 years, 35, 40 years after Jesus died. If somebody made up a story about JFK's death, which happened 60 years ago, I, and many here, could refute because we were there. That would have been the same if they could have refuted the stories of Matthew. Mark, Luke, and John, but nobody could. He continues, as a result, most scholars actually accept as fact that the apostles and earlier followers of Jesus believed Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to a large number of people. Most scholars now conclude, believing and unbelieving, now conclude that the story you read is the story they saw and they believed. It was their testimony from the very beginning. Eyewitnesses have given us an accurate history of what they've seen. And as John wrote, his testimony is true. And he gave it so that we might believe that truth. That we might have as much confidence and the story of Christ as he had as an eyewitness. The third piece of evidence that John offers is the certainty of Jesus' death. Now, why is this important? Because there are people who saw Jesus after he died. If he hadn't died, then there, the appearances of Jesus weren't a resurrection. They were simply Jesus continuing to live. And so John is very clear that Jesus died and was buried. And that part about being buried is very critical. And the Apostle Paul brings it out when he talks about the gospel in the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. And this is his description of the gospel. I delivered to you as of first importance what I received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture, and that he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to twelve, and it goes on and on until he appeared to five hundred at one time. Now, notice what this is saying. 
saying, first of all, the gospel is Jesus Christ died for our sins and he rose again in victory. But he gives proof in this, doesn't he? First proof is he died according to the scriptures. He, the way he died fulfilled scripture. He rose from the dead fulfilling scripture. But he offers more proof. The proof that he rose from the dead is that people saw him. He appeared. The proof that he was dead was that he was buried. And our account gives the story of Jesus' burial. Jesus was dead. That's what Paul's trying to get across. But even today, there are theories out there that Jesus didn't actually die. So that when people saw them, they just saw Jesus because he was still alive. One of those theories is called the swoon theory. And it says that Jesus wasn't completely dead when he was removed from the cross. He only appeared to be dead because his breathing was so shallow, his heartbeat so faint, they were almost, they couldn't detect him. And so they only thought he was dead. Another version of that theory became very, very popular in the book, The Passover Plot. In this book, the author argued that Jesus was given a simulation drug, a death simulation drug, as part of a plot to allow him to survive the crucifixion so they could make up a story about his resurrection. John debunked both of those theories two millennia before they were even proposed. He ensures us of the certainty of Jesus' death. First, it's clear the Roman soldiers believed he was dead. Since it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they then might be taken away. So the soldiers came, they broke the legs of the first, and then of the other who had been crucified, but when they came to Jesus, they saw he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. But what they did do was... They pierced him with a spear. They pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. So the Romans felt he was dead, then they doubly ensured he was dead, and then you had the blood and water coming out. Now, there's two medical theories behind why water and blood would come out. I'm not going to describe those today, because I don't really understand them myself. So... But I will conclude with D.A. Carson when he says, however the medical experts work this out, there can be little doubt that the evangelist is emphasizing Jesus' death, his death as a man, his death beyond a shadow of doubt. But also within this, there is a spiritual significance that John is trying to portray with the water and blood that he has seen with his eyes. That is, in John chapter 6, Jesus alludes to his blood as his death on the cross, or his death for our sins. 
Throughout the Gospel of John, water was a picture of spiritual life, spiritual vitality, the life, spiritual life vitality that the Holy Spirit brings. And so in the death of Jesus Christ, we have the picture of what he is accomplishing. He came to give us spiritual life. That life would flow through us. That we'd have purpose and meaning and joy. But that comes through his death on the cross. The soldiers proved the certainty of Jesus' death. Excuse me. John proves the certainty of Jesus' death by the soldier's testimony, the soldier's spear, and thirdly, by Jesus' burial. We read, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in that garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. To prove Jesus' resurrection, not only did he need to be seen as alive, but his body must also have disappeared. So if Jesus was seen as alive and yet you could go find his body, it would certainly confuse all of us. But that would mean the appearances weren't Jesus. His body disappeared from a tomb. Now, the Jews provided a burial site for criminals outside the city. It was a common grave. So normally, the body of someone like Jesus, a criminal, would be taken and thrown in a common grave outside the city in order to not desecrate the city. His body would be lost forever. Nobody could find it. But instead, God works the incredible he moves two secret disciples to go to Pilate and ask for Jesus' body. And it's placed in a tomb, a tomb everyone knew because Paul, John names the two men who took his body. A tomb anyone could go see is the body of Jesus there. And they did go, and the body of Jesus wasn't there three days later. Um, Now, what's interesting is that John names the men who took his body. See, if you were making up a story, it'd be very easy to say, and so a couple of Jesus' disciples took the body and put it in a tomb, and we'd never be able to check it out because we wouldn't know who those disciples are. But not only does he give names, but he gives the names of two prominent men. These men were members of the Sanhedrin, the ruling class of the Jews. In some ways, it's almost, this Sanhedrin is pretty much our Senate, our U.S. Senate and Supreme Court rolled into one. And so he names them prominent men that people could seek out and know. Names just about everyone would know. That furthers the credibility of this story. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus took Jesus' body, put it in a tomb where everyone would know where it's supposed to be, where it was laid, and where it disappeared. You know, it's amazing, though, that these two men, secret disciples up to this point, 
They were afraid to align themselves with Jesus because of the fear of the Jewish people and the reprisal against them. All of a sudden, they became bold when Jesus' most closest disciples are hiding in fear. How do we account for this newfound courage when coming forward now may well have meant their lives? How do we explain that new courage? See, there's only one event between their cowardice and their courage, and that's the death of Jesus on the cross. Perhaps they, they saw or heard about the way Jesus died so that their response was similar to the Roman centurion, unbelieving Roman centurion, who just in the way Jesus died said, truly this must be the Son of God. Or perhaps it was they finally understood the words, it is finished. If you study John 3 and Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, where Jesus compares his being lifted up to the serpent in the wilderness being lifted up. Because when the serpent in the wilderness was lifted up, it healed those people who had been bitten by snakes and were dying. When they looked to that serpent, they were healed. And Jesus paralleled himself with that. That we who were bitten by sin spiritually dead because of our sin when we look to Christ lifted up on the cross dying for our sins we come alive spiritually Nicodemus saw that illustration perhaps when he knew the words it is finished that illustration came back Jesus has died for my sins that's what Jesus is about and that transformed them and gave them a courage beyond that of Peter and Matthew, Thomas. What does that say to us? It says our courage, our strength, our faith, the real source of that is the cross of Jesus Christ and the gospel. You know, Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 6. You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. That's what happened to Nicodemus and Arabeth and Joseph. They knew they were bought with a price. And now their lives were about glorifying God. Coming forward for Jesus Christ. Our lives become transformed when we fix ourselves at the cross. In his first letter, John wrote, We love because he first loved us. The source of our love for God, our love for our neighbor, the source of living the Christian life is our meditation on the price that Jesus paid for us. It's essential that we live at the foot of the cross. It's critical that we preach the gospel to ourselves every day, that we get captured by what Jesus has done, and that propels our lives day by day. Are the accounts of Jesus' life and teaching in the scriptures true? Is our hope true? The comfort we receive, the courage we have, the evidence which we've seen, and we've barely touched the surface of the evidence, screams out, it is true. If you're not yet a believer, 
please don't dismiss the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus as a myth or fanciful tale. Explore the evidence surrounding the life, death, and resurrection of the most central figure in all of history. Your eternity, your relationship with God, your purpose, your fulfillment rest on your response to this gospel message. If you're a believer, the comfort you feel when you lose a loved one, the courage you gain in facing your own mortality is justified. Let these lead to your joy where others have sorrow. Because we can cry out with John, it's true, it's true, it's true, we believe it. We have eternal life. Let's pray. Our Father, meet us, O oh God, with this truth today. It's certainly timely for us as a body. Continue to meet JW's family with this hope and this comfort and this vision of the loving arms of Jesus welcoming JW into his presence. Amen.